G'day humans, happy new year from the safe space for dangerous ideas. Uh, Josh Sips uh, with you, last show of 2022. 20, uh, I was about to say last show of 2021. I'm a bit behind. Uh, forgive me. Life moves fast, doesn't it? I don't know what year it is. It still sounds amazing that it's going to be 2023. And yet it, I even bore myself by saying that it sounds amazing that it's 2023 because it's such a cliche that as people enter middle age, they start going, oh, time is just going so fast. Would you believe it is December already? I can't believe it's December already. I thought it was May. If you'd asked me, I would have I said it was I would have said it was May. I oh, know it's boring, but it's true. If you're listening to this and you're, you know, 15 or 20, it is one of those bizarre things that no matter how much you tell yourself, I'm not going to become that guy. He's always going, hasn't time flown another year? Honestly, they must be speeding up the clock or something. You will become that guy. You will. You just will. Anyway, 2023, going to be a great year. We're doing an Ask Me Anything uh, today. You asked me some wonderful questions on social media. Oh, and last, uh, when I was doing the intro to the last episode, uh, gee, they come thick and fast these days, don't they? You, we're so generous to you because you're being so generous to us by subscribing on Substack. So now you're getting lots more content. Uh, and on the last episode, which dropped, I think, 48 hours ago, I was saying that I wanted to, uh, to reflect about 2023 and why we should be hopeful for 2023 and what lessons we might take this new year. Uh, and I, I just wanted to share with you one thing that I punted to this episode, which is that I'm going to make a bit of a resolution, a New Year's resolution, which I don't tend to do. I don't tend to be like, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to start to meditate, mainly because I just always fail. But I think I can succeed at this one. I want to be less tolerant of people being down on everything. I think it's become a bit too fashionable to be down on everything, to be in the kind of like world is going to shit mindset. This is something that I thought was satirized quite beautifully and brilliantly in season two of White Lotus, which if you haven't seen, you should. The idea that, you know, when you're rich, you sort of have, you have so few real serious material problems that you have to invent a lot of problems to keep you entertained. Like, you know, PJ O'Rourke used to say, Everyone knows what whiners rich people are. And in a sense, in the modern world, in the West, we've all become rich. We just don't suffer the threat of real hardship, starvation, and physical violence that has been the backdrop to human experience throughout most of history and in most places. And so as a result, we become neurotic and anxious and self-obsessed. We lose focus on the things that really matter, the things that are in our control, the things that surround us. And we locate our focus on, you know, be the big dramatic things that really do matter, like climate chaos or Ukraine or floods in Australia or social media or COVID or politics. Or we focus our attention on the, the minutiae that really shouldn't matter, you know, like whether or not our couch has had red wine spilled on it or whether or not, you know, what we're going to get little Brittany for Christmas. And we don't spend enough time just being generally positive. And like, this is a different resolution from quiet gratitude, which I think is also important. Like, I wish I was the type of person who had the discipline to write a gratitude journal every evening or every morning. Even just three things. Like, it, we have proven, we know these things work. We have proven that if you 
focus on just three, if you just notice, just take note of three things that you're grateful for in your life each day, and you spend just a minute doing that, then you are measurably more happy and relaxed and have better perspective. And then, you know, brings down your blood pressure and all that sort of nonsense. But who cares about that? It makes you happier. And if you think, oh, I can't think of three things that I'm grateful for every single day. Well, you can if you don't have cancer. There's one. If your loved ones are healthy, there's another. If your house hasn't burned down, there's a third. You know, we can easily rattle off. If you can't easily rattle off 20, 30, or 50 things to be really grateful for about living in a rich Western democracy or Eastern democracy in 2023, you're not trying hard enough and your brain has been contorted and warped by the media and by, I suppose, just our instinct as human beings to always focus on threats and to fret about the future instead of chilling out and appreciating the present, which probably wasn't, wouldn't have been a very good evolutionary strategy. The ancestors of ours who did chill out and appreciate things and gaze up at the trees got eaten by tigers. So we are the descendants of the people who were constantly in a state of anxiety. And in the absence of real threats, we have to channel that anxiety and fear somewhere. So we form these sort of cultural cliques where we're snarky about everything. Oh, the world today. Oh, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. What about all those things like Ukraine and the climate and the floods and the wildfires and COVID. Okay. Okay, they exist. And of course, some cohort of you will respond to what I've just said by misunderstanding that I'm saying that there aren't problems that need to be fixed or by misunderstanding that I'm agitating for people to be more apathetic about making the world a better place or that I'm speaking from a place of privilege I mean, I am speaking from a place of privilege, mainly because I was born into a rich democracy and a loving family. That's the ultimate privilege. You can probably sprinkle on top a bit of white privilege. There may be a bit of male privilege. I'm not sure that I believe that male privilege still exists, which is a conversation for another day. That doesn't mean that there aren't structural impediments that make it harder for women to do certain jobs like being politicians and CEOs, but that just for the actual daily experience of being discriminated against in, in, you know, as a result of gender quotas and parity and things now has to, as a male, now has to be balanced against the structural impediments to women. That's so anyway, I've probably just gotten myself into a huge amount of hot water, but I'm not going to spend the hour that I would need to spend to untangle what I mean by that. We can make that a podcast for another day. Nonetheless, I'm just acknowledging that I do have very privilege along various metrics and that nonetheless, that doesn't mean that I can't appeal to your better nature to be more grateful about the things that we're blessed with. Like, I'm not saying let's be totally Pollyanna. And I am saying what I think are defensible facts. Like, you can literally measure that we are currently living healthier lives, longer lives, less violent lives, more prosperous lives with a greater range of foods, a greater range of recreation, and a greater range of creature comforts than any humans pretty much ever have. And I'm not saying that necessarily makes us happy, but I'm just saying if, you, if you're going to say that that's irrelevant, then you're making a very peculiar argument about human progress. 
that, and it's an argument that people who lacked the things that you currently enjoy did not buy into and that you probably wouldn't buy into if you didn't have all of the creature comforts that you're shitting on too. So I'm going to be less tolerant of people being down on everything in the new year. I'm going to try to foster not just quiet gratitude, but almost radical appreciation. I want to try to encourage us as a people, as a community, as countries and a planet to proactively insist that we count our blessings. There are some wonderful traits in our cultural and political and social lives that we should be grateful for, in addition to acknowledging the systemic injustices and inequalities too. I think Australia has wonderful characteristics that we shouldn't allow ourselves to denigrate or forget about. Resilience, larrikinism, a cheerful attitude towards argumentation and difference of opinion, freedom of thought, I should hope, egalitarianism, what some Aussies call mateship. We have the tools of science and reason. We have the attitudes of tolerance and debate. So let's not fulfill PJ O'Rourke's aphorism when he says that rich people are whiners and in a sense we've all become rich. Let's foster a little more joy, gratitude, and just a bouncy, positive respect for the blessings that we inherit. Uh, This is a quick reminder. I never ask you to do this, but leave a bloody rating on the podcast app. I know that's annoying and I'm asking you to do a lot because there's the whole Substack thing that you should also be subscribed to. Uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. All you have to do is sign up with an email. If you haven't, just do it now. It's easier than hearing me bang on about it. But the the other way to sort of create this independent media empire that means that people like me are not so beholden to big media money and big media executives is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts alarmingly few people have. I think we only have a few hundred reviews or something and other podcasts that are not as successful as this one have thousands and thousands. And the reason we do that is not because we, I want you to leave a good review. It's just because Apple's peculiar algorithm that's hidden there in the, you know, the Silicon Valley servers that no one quite understands. It, it bumps up and presents to other people as suggested podcasts, podcasts that people are talking about. So if it sees you chattering about it and like leaving a rating and a review, it goes, oh, this is a podcast that has some interest, some engagement using that awful metric. You might hate it, but at least you're engaging with it. Therefore, Apple is going to put it in front of people who, aren't, who, don't, already, uh, who don't already subscribe to it or listen to it. Uh, I mean, the other thing you can do that's really good is just scour your brain momentarily to think if there's anyone else who you know who would like this show and shoot them a text message and say, by the way, do you listen to Josh's show? Do you know who Josh is? Uh, you know, if if ten percent of you do that, and then ten percent of those people do that, then pretty soon a hundred trillion people will be subscribed to this podcast, and that would be terrible because there aren't even that many people, and all of the podcast servers in the world would collapse. So, for fuck's sake, be careful with this tool of exponential growth that I've just handed you, like some deranged pyramid scheme. I am the Bernie Madoff of, uh, of podcasts. Uh, so ask me anything questions. If you don't hear a question answered here, uh, it's, uh, it's not because I didn't like the question. Uh, it's just because uh, I don't like you and I think you're a worthless uh, human being, obviously. No, that's not true. Um, it's because my producer didn't put it in front of me. Uh, Kate 
on Twitter says, thoughts on having one day a month every month when we get off socials, we walk out of our boxes, drop our labels and claims for status, and we say hi to each other, chat with neighbours in the shops, at the park, we seek it out like it's a thing. Yeah, imagine that. Oh, yes. So obvious. So obviously true. As you listen to this, is there any part of you that doesn't think that if we had a kind of a Sabbath from technology, we would be better as a people? And that you individually would be better as a person? This is the weird thing about addiction. Like, you know it's bad in every way, and yet you keep going back to it. If you've ever had experience with smoking or over-drinking or gambling, or if you've had a loved one who is caught in the throes of any of those traps, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? It's like, I'm aware that it's causing all of these problems. I'm aware that it's giving me nothing apart from momentarily fixing the problem that it created. And yet I can't get out of that loop. So what do you call our engagement with social media and digital devices at this point? If not that. Like, I am 100% positive that if there was a day on which I knew that, hey, it's Sunday. If I'm at the supermarket on Sunday, I'm there without my phone or at least like I've got some rule like it's on airplane mode or something, or it's, you know, data is switched off. And if I'm standing in line at the supermarket and I'm waiting to check out on a Sunday, I don't pull my stupid little screen out of my pants and start scrolling through what other people are doing on Instagram. That's a time when I don't do it. I can do it six days a week, but I don't do it on that day. Does anyone think that we wouldn't be better off individually and as a society if we did that? It's a no-brainer, Kate. I'd love to find a way to instantiate a sort of a technology, technological Sabbath, if not as a broad cultural movement, then at least in my life and my family's life. Uh, Dean on Twitter says, Prince or Michael Jackson? I mean, that's easy. And maybe I'll surprise people by saying Michael Jackson. Without a doubt. It's funny, I never got on the Prince train. I don't know how I, how did I, you know how there are some people who just pass you by and you're not quite sure why? Maybe I'm the wrong age or something, or I'm not cool enough. I don't, like, I mean, there are, I obviously know the big, big famous Prince songs, but I don't really understand, like, I don't get why he is who he is in the minds of people who revere him so. And the people who revere him so are clearly really, really well-educated people about music and pop culture, so I, I guess they're right. But it's a bit like David Bowie. I'm like, yeah, okay, there's Bowie and there's Prince. Good on you. But I just don't spend a lot of time. Like if I had to spend the next year only listening to their music, I'd be bummed. But in a strange way, if I only had, if I'd spend the next year only listening to Michael Jackson music, as long as we're including Jackson 5, I'd be like, all right, I think I can manage it for a year. There's a lot of great poppy songs in there. It'll give me a spring in my step at least. Um, but however, I should hasten to add, uh, child rape, not so keen on that aspect of Michael Jackson. So not, you know, not going for the whole package. I'm just carving out the, the art, which I think we can still do. Can we? Someone's going to take a clip of this and in 15 years saying this is going to get you jailed.
So I'm just jailed myself. Uh, question from uh, R Wajari on Instagram. What are some of your most memorable class or seminar discussion moments from your formative high school and university days? What a great question. Hmm. I remember at uni, and I went to a to the University of Technology, Sydney, where I'm now a visiting fellow, um, which just means that we have a collaboration in which uh, I assist them in having the kinds of conversations that that they are interested in having, and they assist me in having the conversations that I am interested in having. And there is a kind of, uh, we dovetail nicely because their dean, um, Professor Davison, Alan Davison, is committed to the kind, same kinds of ideals that I am, which are so rare in tertiary education around so much of the English-speaking world at the moment, ideals of true freedom of speech, true dialogue with people you disagree with, true generosity towards your opponents, true stimulating kind of provocative out there arguments at university. That's what universities used to be. And now they are just so much conformist social justice nonsense. And it's nice to see, um, it's nice to see Alan at UTS because UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney, where I did journalism and media studies, was one of the worst offenders when it came to politically correct conformist groupthink nonsense in its studies subjects. So it was, it's, it's always been fantastic at, at the practical subjects. And it taught me an enormous amount about filmmaking and about radio broadcasting, about television production. And I loved all that. But as soon as I got into the cultural and social studies classes, like I was a nerd. I really wanted to learn about history and I wanted to learn philosophy and I wanted to learn art. And so I needed, I craved, I hungered for like big old sandstone buildings full of stuffy professors teaching the classics. Like I wanted to understand Socrates. You know, I wanted to understand the Enlightenment. It was a lot that I wanted to know that I hadn't gotten from high school. Um, and University of Technology Sydney at the time was very focused on disrupting the discourse and like problematizing like straight white male concepts. And, you know, I guess this is the beginning of woke. Uh, and so I quickly took cross-institutional electives at Sydney University, which is the oldest and sort of most venerable kind of old school uh, university in Sydney, and absolutely loved that. And I remember one moment, like, for example, I studied, sub I studied history at Sydney University, but at University of Technology Sydney, they didn't even have a class called history. It was called Making Australia. And it focused on the contribution that like women, minorities, migrants, and indigenous populations had had on the construction of Australia and their relationship to the Australian identity, which is all well and good after you already know what happened. But you can't start with that before you know what happened. And I felt the same about philosophy. I didn't yet know what Descartes had really been on about or what Hobbes meant or who Schopenhauer was. So stop like complicating this by teaching me how like you know, pretentious French philosophers in the 1950s problematized all of the ideas of the Enlightenment. I didn't under fully understand those original ideas yet. So anyway, I remember one particular class where we were talking about democracy and politics in Asia. And my tutor in the class was this South Asian lady who was very 
sort of, you know, like nose stud, you know, diamond nose stud kind of very fairy, like hippy dippy type, um, I guess Sri Lankan Australian or Indian or Pakistani Australian. And she was very hard to pin down about whether or not she thought there was anything good about uh, the West, about democracy, liberalism, freedom of speech. She basically required us all to concede that you're always biased towards the system that you live inside of, and therefore it's impossible to find a position to stand from which you can impartially judge the various merits of competing systems, whether that's, you know, communist China versus uh, the empire of the United States uh, versus, you know, the Scandinavian social democracies and so on. She was basically saying, like, of course you students think that Western liberal democracy is superior because you live in Western liberal democracies. If you lived in Russia, then you would think that Russia's form of authoritarian government was superior. And that just always smelled like a bit of a cop-out to me. Because it's one of those things where, yes, there's a kernel of truth in it. Like, I get what she's saying. Of course, we're all biased and we should try to think outside the box. But it is sometimes also the case that, like, there has to be one system that produces better results than others. I mean, there can be many, but, you know, there is going to be some cohort of systems that produce better results than some other cohorts. And in those better systems, there will also be people living. And you can't just say you guys aren't able to have to formulate an opinion, you know, a very fact-driven data-based opinion about whether or not life is superior in countries like Canada, New Zealand, and Norway than it is in countries like North Korea, Cuba and Cuba, because you're in those countries, therefore you don't have any standing because you're not standing on like Saturn looking back with no prior assumptions. That just seems to me to be just an intellectually lazy cop-out. So we were talking about Tiananmen Square and she goes, you know, what you need to understand is that um, there is a very different attitude towards uh, the community and individual rights, and individual thought, and individual, what we call, quote-unquote, freedoms in China, than there is here. And she basically proceeded to sort of justify Tiananmen Square. And I put my hand up, and I said, well, I'm sure that argument would have come as a great consolation to the people whose limbs were being crushed under tanks. I'm sure they were sitting stand, sitting there, lying there as their guts were spilling out onto the pavement, thinking, you know what, this is ju- it's really just cultural relativism that makes me dislike this. You know, if I really understood the Confucian mindset, then I would understand that the Westerners who are criticizing the Chinese Communist Party right now for driving over me in a tank, they are just, uh, they're just caught up in their own, they're just as biased. They're just as biased, really. I mean, I should really be enjoying seeing my legs being ripped apart from my body by a fascist, communist, mercantilist regime. Because, you know, who am I to say that this is bad? And that was the point at which I unsubscribed from the social and cultural theory subjects at the University of Technology, Sydney. But now it's better because they've got a great professor. So don't use this as a contemporary argument against that, that, that college. 
Uh, David on Twitter says, what are your thoughts on the voice to parliament? If you're not in Australia, the voice to parliament is a proposal that will go to a referendum uh, shortly within the next 12 to 24 months. Um, to to create a body for Indigenous Australians to advise Parliament about issues that will impact Indigenous people. Uh, I think it seems like a common sense idea. Most Australians seem to be behind it. I don't think there's any any real reason to object to it. It's not going to be binding. It's not going to be, you know, it's not. It, some people are claiming, oh, this is like an extra chamber of Parliament or something just for Indigenous people and it's discriminatory because they're only there because they're First Nations people and what about white people? Um, you know, I think when you colonise another country, if you're going to be decent about it, then after 200 years of shitting on them, then you can say, like, there's been a lot, a lot of completely disregarding what First Nations communities wanted. So it doesn't hurt just to have, like, a, a place in which they're able to say, okay, our opinion about X, Y, Z would be that this is the preferable way to do it. However, my big but is when you're talking about a voice to Parliament, the obvious next question is, whose voice? Because one of my big problems with identity politics is that highly educated, usually quite wealthy, sort of university-inclined white people like to cherry-pick, you know, on the left, like to cherry-pick people of colour from minority communities who reflect the white educated person's own preferences about how to resolve some of these questions. Um, so it's important to make sure that there's a diversity of voices, not just a diversity of, you know, well, here are all the black people. We're going to put them in a chamber and we're going to pick the ones who sort of agree with each other about what the mainstream progressive narrative about what's best for First Nations is. Like there is a lot of disagreement among First Nations Australians about the utility, for example, of doing acknowledgements of country and welcomes of country, you know, land acknowledgements before every public meeting. You know, every morning on ABC Radio Sydney, whenever I'm on the breakfast show, the first thing that goes to air is an acknowledgement of country. You get on a flight in Australia, there's an acknowledgement of country. Um, and so a, a question as simple as that has disagreement amongst different Indigenous Australians, let alone something like how do you address high rates of domestic violence among regional communities, amongst First Nations people? To what extent should states and territories go into, you know, single parent households and quote unquote rescue Indigenous children and try to foster them against the will of an alcoholic or abusive parent, given that we know the history the terrible, appalling history of the stolen generations in places like Australia and Canada, where children were forcibly removed from perfectly peaceful, perfectly functional Indigenous families because it was, you know, because racists regarded Indigenous Australians as being incapable of raising children the proper way. So there are lots of disagreements, you know, should alcohol be banned in some outback Indigenous towns? A lot of local Indigenous elders think it should be. So you want to make sure that the voice to parliament is uh, 
a freewheeling, rambunctious, uh, true voice where people with lots of different perspectives from across all of the First Nations communities can hammer out their disagreements and hopefully present those disagreements to Parliament when relevant and go, look, you know, well, those of us from here think this and those of us from here think this, almost like you might have a, a court, I guess, handing down recommendations, but there would also be a dissent from inside the chamber, something like that. Like I'd, I, I would want a voice to Parliament that is... Um, that is complex and messy. What you don't want, and what I would, you know, think would be a terrible missed opportunity, would be a voice to Parliament, which is all of the self-appointed, uh, self-important, uh, you know, spokespeople for this particular community being cherry-picked to speak with one voice that conforms to what bleeding heart liberals think that they should say. That would be a missed opportunity. Uh, Lee on Twitter says, uh, 5842, Elon is voted out of office, sink and all. Josh Sepps and his funky accent are taking the wheel of Twitter. What do you do? Hmm. I won't take the easy answer here and say shut it down because that's not very helpful. I, I think what needs to happen is half what Elon is trying to do, which is it needs to turn into a subscription. I think all social media should be paid subscription services. But Elon is missing the other half of my strategy. Well, it's not my strategy. It's the strategy of anyone who understands the the ethics and the social and cultural impacts of social media. If you've seen a, a, a show like The Social Dilemma on Netflix, um, what needs to happen is that you need the algorithms to stop governing what we see to drive us to more addictive and extreme content like social media is an extremification machine it is a reinforcement machine this is part of the mission of this podcast to try to help us break out of our echo chambers and our bubbles by extending a maximally generous attitude towards people i disagree with so that you have the freedom to hear decent arguments on all sides and social media doesn't do that social media values engagement and engagement means it's either a piece of content that you agree with and it reinforces your preconceptions, or if it's a piece of content that you disagree with, you're likely to, you're more likely to engage with it more if it flames your inflames your outrage than if it provides you with the most nuanced and sophisticated version of your opponent's arguments. So some people say, oh, you're on social media, all you see is things that you agree with. It just reinforces what you already believe. That's not entirely true because obviously your social media feed includes lots of things that you disagree with. The problem is that there are always the more extreme or stupid versions of things that you disagree with because those are the things that are being presented to you because the algorithm knows that you're more likely to comment on them or to share them and try to own own them, own the person who posted it. So I understand that you can't really just go back i mean i've heard mark zuckerberg talk about this you know when he's asked why don't you just go back to what facebook was which it used to be a reverse chronological feed of all of the things that your friends had posted so whichever was most recent would be at the top and then it would just go back in time instead of having an algorithm rig the system to try to present you with things that it thinks you're going to engage with more and zuckerberg says well the problem with that is you know, what if you have a friend or a brand who just knows that they can post every eight minutes and then they're always going to be at the top of your feed? So the algorithm has to factor in that kind of thing. I do not believe 
that it is beyond the capability of software engineers in Silicon Valley to devise algorithms that weed out that sort of nonsense and stop the system from being gamed, but nonetheless uh, do not favour content that you're necessarily going to engage with. Like, why is engaging with content necessarily the metric of the good? It's the metric of inflaming us and reinforcing us and making us more aggravated and more impassioned and losing perspective. I mean, just look at what's happened to Elon himself. The man is a walking case study of the dangers of Twitter. I was listening to Ezra Klein the other day who was making the point that does anybody in the world think that Elon today is focused on more important things with a bigger picture compared to the Elon of 10, 15, 20 years ago with a a bigger mission, a bigger heart, a greater sense of purpose and generosity and humanity. I mean, here is a person who has so much to recommend him, who's done an extraordinary amount through SpaceX and his boring company and Tesla and Neuralink, incredible visionary. Does anyone think that Twitter has made him more focused on things that matter? I mean, here you can see in one person the microcosm of what Twitter is doing to all of us and to our culture. So what would I do if I took over Twitter? I would try to make money from subscriptions and eliminate advertising so the ad dollar is not part of it. And I would try to, I would just tell my tech engineers to stop using like time on site and engagement as the metric. The metric should be, are people paying their monthly fee? And that should be it. They shouldn't need to be on it all the time. That shouldn't be the imperative. Reminds me a little bit of the shift that HBO made to network television. You know, network television needs you to be watching TV all the time at every moment, the maximum number of eyeballs watching every 15 minutes. And so it's sort of dumb, it's a dumbed down version of television. What streaming has done, the reason we've got such great content on television now, it began with HBO, but now has exploded through all the other streamers, is because the streamers don't need a maximum number of people watching every 15 minutes. They just need you to like something enough that you're willing to pay your monthly fee. If we could make social media like that, So you're not constantly being tugged to look at it. It's just like, there is a utility here, I'll pay my monthly fee, but it's not always like programmed to draw you in and keep you there. That would be my main mission as the new boss of Twitter. Pastrami Nostradamus on Twitter, great name, uh, says, what would you do if you were PM of Australia and what would you do if you were dictator of Australia? If I was PM of Australia, I would work as hard as I can to get the country's brightest minds to figure out how to pull off the transition to clean energy and then race towards doing that as quickly as possible without ruining the lives of people who currently work in coal and dirty industries. I mean, Australia is so blessed as, you know, such a sunny, hot country with plenty of wind and a vast coastline. I mean, Australia is the same size as the contiguous United States with half the population of California, basically, about the population of Florida. And so there's no reason at all why we shouldn't be producing way more energy than we need from renewables. It's just the fact that we also happen to have tons of coal and, uh, you know, that, that sort of skews things. So how do you, how do you pull off that transition? 
One of the big ways would be to electrify everything. I'd provide, I'd regard, I'd basically take Saul Griffith's idea. If you haven't heard of Saul Griffith, uh, he will be a guest on the podcast shortly. He has a fascinating idea, which is basically electrify everything and worry about the, how you get your electricity later. Because as long as it, once everything is electrified, then as people, as more and more people get electric cars, that will solve the Oh, what happens when it does when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine problem? Because you'll have a massive battery. Like car batteries are extraordinarily dense in terms of their energy. If you have one and a half cars, which is what most people have on on average in every Australian home, then that solves the the problem altogether. I think I think that can can run an Australian home for like a week. That's an amazing amount of power. And then if each household was able to, for example, sell its excess power that is stored in its car battery back to its neighbours when its neighbours have all their air conditioners on and you're away on holiday, we need to have like you know the, almost the entire problem can be fixed just by electrifying everything and having smart grids that connect us to our communities and producing as much power as we can locally, like on solar panels and at a community level. Um, so I would basically just dedicate myself to pulling off that transition and figuring out how to bring uh, enough interested parties who have vested interests in the mining industry and mining jobs along with me. You're never going to bring the big, dirty mining companies along, but you may be able to create a civil war between them and some of their other stakeholders, like their employees, by producing a clever enough plan. And then I would use Australia's clout on the international stage to encourage other countries to do the same thing and to work maximally quickly to avert climate chaos. Um, when I say Australia's clout on the international stage, some people might chuckle behind their hands a little bit because it is a medium-sized country and it doesn't have the clout of a country like, uh, I don't know, the United States or even, you know, Germany or the UK or something. But it is interesting. If you talk to diplomats and you talk to people in other governments around the world, they do have an interesting attitude towards Australia. It's it's not so small that it can be ignored, like New Zealand. Um, and it's not so big that it's regarded as being a bully. So people don't have ill will towards it. It's regarded as being a quite an innovative country. Uh, and certainly a very desirable and enviable country. It's a pretty good player in the world. I mean, with a few exceptions, like uh, its refugee policy, for example, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty up to scratch when it comes to abiding by international norms and, in many cases, leading them. I mean, it was it was the first jurisdiction to give women the vote, and you know, it had it has a, a number of notches on its belt and credits in its history like that. So I actually think that if Australia came together and, and we did try to do this, I think it was at the Paris Accords, when was Kevin Rudd prime minister and uh, or was it Copenhagen? Uh, and there was a real attempt and Australia was one of the principal brokers in trying to keep the US and the EU in the room in a dispute with developing countries like China and India about who was going to shoulder the main burden. Anyway, all of that's to say Australia has a disproportionate amount of soft power diplomatically, and we should use it on climate change. And the other thing that I would do as Prime Minister is I would make it my mission to try to figure out what to do with the distribution of humanitarian, of people who need, like, humanitarian refuge around the world. Because my father came to Australia as a refugee when he was eight years old. My His parents fled the Holocaust as climate chaos becomes more and more intense, we're going to have hundreds of millions more refugees. You know, if the monsoons get screwed up in Bangladesh or something, or if, you know, whole swathes of of Asia or Africa 
become just incrementally less habitable because it's so much more hazardous that an old person's going to die of heat stroke there or some such, then you are going to have significant movements of people. There will be significant political destabilization. And the risk is that that leads to right-wing populist backlash politics and that liberal democracy might not be strong enough to withstand the huge swings and costs of constantly being buffeted by not only natural disasters like floods and hurricanes and um, and fires, but also the humanitarian and political challenges of having lots and lots of people trying to get into other countries. Uh, and it's just not fair at the moment that a country like Lebanon has to shoulder all of the problem of, you know, Syrian refugees or you know, half of it. Um, it, there needs to be a systematic way to, for every country as a proportion of its sort of ability to do so, to resettle people in a more orderly process. It's a complete schmozzle at the moment. So that's the second thing that I would do as uh, Prime Minister. Um, the second part of your question, Pastrami Nostradamus, is uh, what would you do if you were a dictator of Australia? I think that's a fairly obvious answer, isn't it? I would give myself as much money as I wanted... Uh, from probably the people who are most able to afford it, like you know, big tobacco companies or big coal mining companies. And then once I had criminally stolen what I wanted, I would turn Australia into a democracy and stop it from being a dictatorship. Uh, Sam on Twitter says, where do you get the best chicken parmigiana? <laughs> this is such a, a peculiar Aussie culinary thing, the chicken parmy. Um, if you're outside of Australia, you may think that it's Italian you know, a breaded piece of chicken breast with some melted cheese on top and usually some ham underneath the cheese, but there are all kinds of interesting spins on it. Like you can do, you know, I don't know, jalapenos or whatever it might be. It is, in Australia, regarded as like a local sort of pub delicacy and people really pride themselves on where to get the best one. I don't want to have my passport revoked, but I don't really get it. Like I, I would much rather have, I don't know, a steak or a spaghetti bolognese or the lamb chop or like anything else that is your standard pub fare in Australia than the chicken parmy. I'm not sure. I'm not a connoisseur. Wrong person to ask. Uh, sorry, Sam. Uh, Nath on Instagram or Nath says, how can you support Australia investing in nuclear power, Josh? And then says, a few thoughts with me being an electrician. One... We don't have any experience or the workforce in building nuclear power plants, so we'd need to import everything and timeframes would blow out from the expected 10 to 15 years. Two, it's the most expensive form of energy, two and a half times the cost of renewables and three times the cost of coal. Three, with the rise of China, it'd be a potential target if war broke out. And four, by the time it's built, renewables will have flooded the market, which they already are, and it costs more money to turn it off than leave it on. Uh... Nathan, you've convinced me. I agree with all of that. I don't know why you think I do support Australia investing in nuclear power. This might be a misunderstanding because I've said that I don't object to nuclear power. I, I may have said that I think we, we need nuclear power as a bridge to renewables, but I, that may have just been part of a rhetorical brain fart. My basic attitude towards nuclear is 90% of people are have their opinion about nuclear power for ideological reasons, not impartial fact 
fact-based reasons. Uh, that is not the kind of person I am. I want to be as fact-based as possible. Therefore, I don't have any ideological objection to nuclear power. I don't I don't think it makes much sense to focus relentlessly on the accidents of corrupt, communist-run, first-generation nuclear power plants like Chernobyl when we're talking about 21st century technology, which is, as I understand it, incredibly safe. I don't think it's worth worrying about the fact that, you know, when an accident does happen, it might take out some significant number of people in one hit when we seem so cool with particulate emissions and coal taking out people very, very slowly. I mean, to me, a nuclear accident is a bit like a plane crash. Like, planes are safer than cars. It's just we don't report on all the daily car crashes. So when a plane falls out of the sky, it's horrendous and people get afraid of flying. But really, you'd be better off flying from a safety perspective than driving a car. Similarly, you know, nuclear is ugly when it goes wrong, but it's, it harms absolutely nobody for years and years and years and years and years when it goes right. So those are, my, those are the reasons for nuclear. But all of those engineering reasons against nuclear, I am completely convinced by. I also think it's a political non-starter in a country like Australia where the number one issue that voters say they care about is the environment. So in places like Europe, where I'm told by reliable people, it will always be required or is it, you know, for the foreseeable future will be required because it's too cold for solar to be as, to make up as, as large a proportion of their energy mix as it can in Australia. I don't, I don't object to nuclear um, that's all I'm saying, if that makes some sense. If we can get from where we are to fully renewable with no nuclear in the mix, uh, and there's no downside to that, then obviously I would not, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to make a hobby of randomly building nuclear power stations for no reason, Nath, don't worry about that. Uh, last question, uh, from title is missing on Twitter. What was your best meal of the year? What a lovely question. What a lovely question, because I've had some absolute crackers, because during the long pandemic lockdowns, I didn't get shit, and so uh, I've had a lovely time going a bit culinary in 2022. The one that stands out the most is probably a farm-to-table restaurant in the middle of nowhere in Tasmania, and it's not actually that far hard to get to. It's only about a 30-minute drive out of the capital city of Tasmania, Hobart, in Tasmania, it doesn't take very long to get to what feels like the middle of nowhere. And you're sitting in this sort of renovated barn with floor-to-ceiling windows looking out over this coastline that sort of looks like, I guess what you might imagine like Newfoundland would look like. Uh, lush and cliffs and water and sky. All of the food comes from their own farm or just up the road. They have, lo they have bees that make the honey. You know, it's all very sort of Portlandia. It's all quite pretentious. Um, but, you know, at a price point that is not insane, I think it was maybe about 150 Australian dollars or 100 US dollars for like 12 courses. It was just course after course of lovely, gentle, delicate, beautiful, flavoursome, natural Tasmanian produce. Another highlight of the year would be a meal that I had in Milan uh, this was just as Omicron was exploding. So I guess this was probably just before uh, the end of 2021, but I'm going to include it anyway because it's within the past 12 months just. Um, 
I had one night in Milan on a stopover. I'd been visiting family for the first time since the pandemic uh, had started, so first time in a couple of years in the south of France. I'd found a flight out of Milan to JFK in first class on Emirates using points, so I, I thought it was worth getting on a train for nine hours from the south of France to go to Milan just to experience the shower in the sky and all that nonsense that Emirates has in first class. Um, travel hacking and using your frequent flyer points and acquiring frequent flyer points in order for the world's most expensive airline products is another uh, hobby of mine and probably a conversation for another day because I know a lot of you are interested in how to do that. Um, but nonetheless, so I'm in Milan and I text my friends uh, who live in Italy, who live in Rome and say, where should I go for just one meal in Milan? And they send me back all these, all these very hip places. You know, oh, there's this amazing you know, Belarusian chef who spent some time in Denmark and now he's putting together all these flavours of, you know, from around the world and he's got lots of foam on his scallops and things like that. And I was like, no, 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 no. I can get that anywhere, that generic, fancy, you know, three Michelin star international cuisine. I want to go to the place where when really wealthy, classy Milan elites go out for a business lunch, say, where do they go? So they say, oh, you have to go to blah blah I'm not, I, I just can't remember the name of the place. I look it up. It's been around since the 1400s. <laughs> it's been a restaurant since the 1400s. Uh, and I go there straight from the train station uh, on my way to the hotel that I'm staying at to fly out the following morning, like literally with my carry-on luggage, white tablecloths, immaculate service. Again, not wildly expensive. I think the mains were about like 25 euros, 30 euros. So it's not, it's not where unclassy people go to feel like they're classy. It's where genuinely classy people just go all the time. And I had a risotto that was beyond belief, uh, just beyond belief. And I don't even normally like risotto, but the thing about it there is they just give you a tiny little bit and then you can order a whole bunch of other stuff as well. It's not just a big dollop of rice. And lastly, my best meal of the year, this, <laughs> my partner, Sean will laugh, will, you know, will be teasing me about this because he can never get me to say my favorite anything. I think it's, I think favorites are stupid. Like, Oh, what's your favorite color? I don't know. It depends on what we're talking about. Do you want, like, if it's a lobster, then I want the lobster to be lobster colored. I don't want to, you know, I don't just have a, some abstract and best movie of all time. What are you talking about? There are so many different movies with so many different attributes. I have to go. So I end up giving these long answers to what is my favorite anything. But another meal would be a couple that I had in Bangkok. I've actually been to Thailand twice in the past 12 months just to get out of my system, all of this pent up COVID wanderlust. Um, and one of them was at a great restaurant. I think it's called Pure and that's a high end restaurant. And I remember that my daughter Stella drew all over the beautiful white tablecloth and they were very polite about it. And that's a sort of a prefix, you know, high-end Thai food. But I probably didn't even enjoy it as much as a, a gritty, uh, smelly, stinky, spicy joint that I went to uh, the last time I was in Bangkok by myself. Uh, the name escapes me, but it was just several courses of mouth-fiery, flavoursome chilies and Mm, funky, extraordinary. So good. Thank you for reminding me of it. Um, I hope this has been randomly enjoyable in uh, in some vague way. Uh, as I say, leave a review, subscribe, you know, on uh, on iTunes, leave a review and, uh, and a rating. Uh, subscribe on Substack, rather, uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. Have a very, very happy new year. I'll see you soon. 